Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today we're going to discuss Dr. Peter Atiyah's new book, Outlive. It's a New York Times bestseller. Um, the full title is Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity. The book is over 400 pages, and so for the sake of clarity, there's so much information in this book, we are specifically going to cover the chapter on mental and emotional health because it's relevant to this podcast and to you, the listener, um, because in it, Dr. Peter Atia, who is married with children, a very successful practice. He has a podcast, is doing very well, um, and now he has a New York Times bestselling book, but he himself in this chapter discusses his struggles with mental and emotional health from rage to depression to frustration to even suicide or suicidal thoughts, I should say. So it was a very powerful uh, um, chapter. And I just want to share with you the takeaways from his journey um, in this chapter. So in the beginning, he discusses that his rage was so out of control that people in his circle, from his wife to his children to his friends, recommended that he go to rehab. He did not want to go. He was that Amy Winehouse doctor said, I should go to rehab. And he said, no, no. Anyway, um, so eventually he goes to a rehab in Kentucky where usually when you go to rehab, you're there for like four weeks, six weeks, two months. He bounced after two weeks thinking, I'm good. I don't need this. Um, <laughs> I got the information. Thank you. And gets home like the day before Christmas and, of course, flies uh, into a full-blown rage again and realize, realizes he needs more help. Now, with that said, that two weeks he did spend at that rehab, he said he had learned a lot. One um, thing is the trauma tree. That's one of the things that really stood out to him. And for a lot of us, we all struggle with various forms of trauma. And sometimes we struggle with trauma and don't even realize it, which was the case for Dr. Peter Atiyah. So the trauma tree, it, the idea behind it is that, you know, oftentimes when we look at our addictions, our maladaptive behaviors, whether it's cutting or being reckless, those are like the branches, the trunk, the leaves of the tree. What we really need to do is get to the root of our addiction, of our pain, of our trauma. Um, and so with the trauma tree, there are basically five uh, 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 roots of trauma. One is abuse, and that could be physical or emotional. So some people have experienced emotional abuse and don't even realize, or they, don't, they kind of dismiss it, right? Because if you have a friend who's experienced physical abuse, then you go, well, my emotional, my mom was just saying stuff. She, you know, she didn't put hands on me. But physical abuse it, it's, it's equal to emotional abuse. No abuse is worse than or better than any other kind of abuse. Abuse is abuse is abuse. 
The second uh, root that we could look at on this trauma tree is neglect. So your, you know, your parents aren't feeding you. They're emotionally neglecting you, physically neglecting you, uh, where they're not hugging, touching, uh, those types of things. So you have that neglect. Maybe you hurt yourself and they don't take you to the hospital, that kind of thing. And then the third is abandonment, right, where they just leave you. And I, I've seen this in, in various movies where the child comes home and the parents have left or maybe the father has left or the, the mother or father works a lot. They travel a lot for work. So maybe they haven't abandoned the family in terms of they just left, but maybe they're on the road two months, three months out, you know, out of the year. And so that can feel like abandonment. And that's one of the key things he brought up was that trauma is not what happens to you. It's your perception of what happens to you. Um, and it's also the, 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 the perceived moments of helplessness. So the, the extent to which you feel helpless in a situation determines how traumatic this experience is, which I love that as a definition, right? It's your perceived helplessness as to what's happening to you. Um, and that determines if we have a, a big T trauma or a little T trauma, which we'll, we'll define here in a moment. Uh, and then the fourth one is enmeshment. And enmeshment is where there, the, the, the parents have kind of blurred the lines between them and as an adult and you as a child. So if you had a parent who was oversharing with you, telling you about their issues, their lives, the bills, um, their relationships, uh, you know, they're just certain things as a child that a, a parent, it, it's, it's just not, it's too much for a child to handle, to hear, because especially if the parent is sharing something with you and then not also helping you to process what's been shared. Because a lot of times as kids, we can internalize the parent's issue. And that was the case for me where my mom would share with me the bills that had to be paid. And so I felt like I needed to work to help mom pay the bills, which a lot of children do that. And you always hear those success stories, but there is a blurring of the lines of, you know, it's one thing for a parent to share that with you. It's another thing to say that it's, but it's my responsibility as a parent to take care of you. You know, don't take that on your own. Um, so, so to have that part of the conversation also. And then the, the child can then decide from there what their actions are going to be versus feeling like, well, since you're sharing this with me, clearly you want me to do something about that. And you see this in adult relationships too where um, your partner may say something to you hoping that you'll get the hint of what they want you to do. And, and sometimes it, they... Um, they're not really hinting, they're just sharing with you, but you don't know that, right? So then you take it upon yourself, well, they said that to me, they clearly want me to do this thing. It's like if your girlfriend is like, hey, you want to go to dinner? And then you go, well, clearly she wants to go to dinner. She's not just asking, she wants to go to dinner. But you don't know that for sure. She might be thinking that you want to go to dinner, but we just make these assumptions in our relationships and then act accordingly. And then the last one, and I thought this was interesting because I don't really hear this last part 
of uh, of the trauma tree being discussed as much, but witnessing traumatic events. You know, I, I grew up in Chicago, and I, I remember seeing someone, um, well, I didn't see them get shot, but I saw them after they had been shot. So, you know, I'm, I'm walking home, and I see them laying in the street, and then the ambulance is coming, and, you know, I saw some other traumatic events as a kid growing up in Chicago, and even as an adult. And, you know, but even now with social media and TV, it's like um, there is just, and, and the news, you know, even in a newspaper, like we were more flooded more with these images of traumatic events and real life traumatic events, not even made up, you know, Hollywood traumatic events, but real life. So all those things can be traumatic. And, and so when we talk about the, uh, trauma's big T trauma versus a little T trauma. A big T trauma is more acute, like rape would be a big T trauma. Um if you were uh you know beaten and left in an uh an alley or something, that would be a big T trauma. A little T trauma would be if your parents were alcoholics. So it's not that a big T trauma means that um it's better than or, or more worse or, or more intense than a little T trauma. It just means that the big T trauma was more acute, like it was an isolated, more of an isolated incident versus a little T trauma was this, this tiny, it was a, it was a, it was a more chronic. It, it was happening more over time, right? Where, um, you know, maybe you're in a hostile environment nothing actually happens to you but that effect on your nervous system that feeling of helplessness of like i want to get out of here i don't know how to get out of here that in itself can be uh traumatic right so we broke down big t trauma little t trauma we talked about the trauma tree and then we want to talk about um you know the fact that how do these traumas manifest itself when we become adults uh, and and what happens is as children we find ways to survive these traumatic events when we're kids and they work for us whether it's it's hiding lying um you know uh, uh cut, cutting ourselves uh whatever however we are adapting to survive as a kid in this environment in the situation that we've been given in uh, we've been given when we become adults that's where we really see the the issue and challenge because a lot of times the way that we've been coping as a child no longer serves as an adult because the the tra- the trauma or the threat of the trauma may no longer be there but we're still reacting as if it is whether it's through rage and yelling or fighting or addiction, right? We're still responding to our past as an adult. And so, and, and there are five ways that this usually, uh, or four ways that this usually manifests itself. One is through addiction. And I like that he broke this down. He said, addiction in terms of work, um, uh, perfectionism, and exercise. So, you know, you know, because when we talk about addiction, we usually talk about drugs, alcohol, and uh, gambling, right? 
but and food obviously right or, or i say food obviously because that's my thing um but we we rarely talk about work exercise and and trying to be perfect all those can be uh an addiction the second way it can show up as a maladaptive behavior when we are adults is through codependency where you know we're just we're over reliant on other people in our lives to provide for us physically, emotionally, financially, mentally, for all the things. And and there's nothing wrong with counting on people or being dependent on someone else. Uh, but ideally, we'd want to be interdependent, right? Where there's a give and take between us and the people around us, where if I'm helping you with this, you're helping me with that. And, and there's a give and take. Or if I'm if I am going to you for for happiness, I, I don't need you for happiness. It would just be nice if you came along for the ride, right? So codependency is another thing. And then three uh the third uh way that trauma could uh manifest itself as an adult is through habituated uh survival strategies, meaning anger, rage, yelling, crying or controlling. So sometimes, you know, if you're a person who doesn't have that voice that gets people's attention when you yell, so you might use tears as a as a maladaptive coping mechanism or controlling the environment, you know, telling people what to do. So those habituated survival strategies. And then the last one is attachment disorders where, you know, we struggle to maintain meaningful relationships or even to have ma uh, meaningful relationships. So if, if the, any of those sound like you, it, it is not, you know, I, I, I want to encourage you to recognize that we are all struggling with these on different levels. So it's not about being free of any of these things. It's more about being aware. What I also love in his book is he talks about the difference between mental health and emotional health. He says that mental health is more like a disease state. Think about schizophrenia, clinical depression. Those are mental health issues. Emotional health are ways in which we regulate our emotions and manage interpersonal relationships. I really love this distinction between mental health versus emotional health, right? Um, and I would imagine, like, I, I remember there was this video or a documentary about the Unabomber and how they would attach these electrodes to his head and make him watch these violent uh, videos um, when he was in college. And then he goes on to be uh, the Unabomber. So he clearly was struggling with mental health and emotion. He was struggling with both, but the mental health part was um, more prevalent to me now that as I as I think about his state, just because of the amount of electricity they exposed him to, the way they manipulated his emotions and his attachment to the professor. It, it was it was really uh, it was really sad uh, to watch. Um, and disheartening. It doesn't excuse what he did, but um, it, it also doesn't excuse what the institution allowed to happen to him. 
it, yeah, it was just really a sad case all around. Now, how do we, if we're a person struggling with our with traumas, maladaptive behaviors, whether it's rage, controlling, addiction, codependency, how did Dr. Peter Atia um, navigate his way to managing um, any mental health issues or emotional health? And he said one of the key things was um, improving his distress tolerance. So the the main therapy that he found effective for him was dialectical behavioral therapy. And dialectical behavioral therapy is predicated on learning to execute concrete skills repetitively under stress uh, with the aim to break the chain reaction of negative stimulus to negative emotions to negative thought to negative action, right? The overarching theme is mindfulness, which gives us the ability to work through uh, the, the, the four pillars of dialectical behavioral therapy. And the four pillars of DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, are emotional regulation, which is getting control over our emotions. Uh, two is distress tolerance, our ability to handle emotional stressors. Three, interpersonal uh, effectiveness, uh, which is how well we make our needs and feelings known to others. And four, self-management, taking care of ourselves, beginning with basic tasks like getting up in time to go to work or school. When I ran into the friend of Rashan Salam, who was the NFL running back, and one of the reasons why I started this podcast, the thing that he mentioned about Rashan was his inability to take care of himself. For those of you who are new to the podcast, Rashan Salam was an NFL quarterback, Heisman Trophy winner in college, and he ended his life at the age of 33. And, he, and his story was one of the reasons why I started this podcast, because when I heard from his, one of his good friends that he struggled with taking care of himself, right, with the basic task of, of just, you know, ma managing his finances, taking care of his health, all those different things. I was like, wow, how many, how many more people are struggling with taking care of themselves? And so for Dr. Peter Atia, he recognized that his, the main pillar that he needed to work on was um, his distress tolerance. And so how do we improve our distress tolerance? And once again, that's our ability to handle emotional stressors. And I love it because he really does a deep dive. And he says, in order to expand his window of distress tolerance, it's rooted in being proactive, right? It's not about how do we, you know, sometimes we'll wait for something stressful to happen and then be like, how do I respond to that? And really, it's about being proactive and laying the groundwork so that when a stressful event does pop up, it doesn't feel stressful. So that we don't really have to do much on the back end. And there's a few things he listed. He talked about exercise, especially if you can exercise outdoors with other people. It's great for helping us manage our distress tolerance. Great sleep. I try to get seven to eight uh, seven to nine hours sleep a night. If I can't, I'll take a nap. For, uh, either I'll do like an eight-minute nap 
or a one-hour nap. It just depends. But sleep is so impactful, especially around the midday, 2, 3 p.m. I mean, I'm, my cortisol levels are, are pretty high. I, I need to, to just unplug and do nothing. So we have exercise, sleep, good nutrition. There's a book called Brain Energy. And in terms of nutrition, he talks about the importance of protein, fat, and fiber in our diets. And in this book, Outlived by Dr. Peter Atia, he also emphasizes the importance of protein in our diet. Um, and then he, you know, he goes into some other things. And I may do an episode where um, I'm just talking about the nutritional aspects uh, or lessons from his book. So making sure we have good nutrition. And good nutrition, by the way, is dependent on you, right? Depending on your physiology, your metabolism, uh, your activity levels, there is no one-size-fits-all for nutrition. The other is time. Time with family, right? Making sure that, um, you know, I, I try to call my mom every day. Michelle and I, we uh, set aside time in the evenings to, to be with each other, whether it's just to check in or to uh, watch, a, a, you know, a TV show or what have you. Um, but, just, but just knowing that you have scheduled time with family. And then taking any medications, whatever meds you have to take. I have asthma, so every morning and every night I have to take uh, my asthma medications. Um, that's a part of helping us. I mean, if I don't take my asthma medications, I'm not going to be able to exercise the way that I want to, right? So there becomes this domino effect of issues from not taking my medications. And even mental health uh, uh, medications, whether it's a mood stabilizer or what have you, making sure you're taking your medications. And then with that, making sure that you're not taking anything that you don't need to be taking. You might be um, uh, putting something into your system that uh, actually may be blocking or interfering uh, with your ability to regulate your emotions. Because sometimes medications can, you know, they have those adverse side effects. I, I was taking um, an asthma, I don't remember if it was an asthma medication, I forgot what it was. And it like, multiplied my suicidal ideations it i was like what is going on and then the doctor was like oh yeah uh those calls suicidal thoughts i was like what get out of here anyway so medications and then deep social connections when we talk about deep social connections i had a, a, a episode about this it it's like creating those moments where you can really just spend time with another person whether it's uh, two hours, four hours, ten hours. It, it sounds like it's too long, but I, you know, I recently went on a trip with someone else and uh, with some other people, Michelle and I, and we, you know, we had the weekend together in an Airbnb, and we really had an opportunity to form deep connections. Now, that's one way to do it. That's a very acute way to do it, but we could also chronically form deep connections where, you know, if you go into the same grocery store. Every time you go in, you're sharing a little bit more about yourself and they're sharing a little bit more about them. And then you're building a deeper connection over time, right? So those deep connections. Getting out in nature helps us to uh, expand our window of distress tolerance. And then recreational activities. So whether it's bocce ball or pickleball, um, woodworking, clay making, painting, what are your recreational 
activities. The other thing that Dr. Peter Tia wanted to work on was uh, his emotional distress. And emotional distress uh, is defined in the book, or emotional regulation was getting control over his emotions, right? And one of the... (laughs) And one of the ways that he manages his emotional distress is looking at when looking at his self-talk, right? How do, is he speaking to himself the way his he would speak to his best friend, or the way that he would want his best friend to speak to him? Because a lot of times, what's contributing to our emotional distress is um, you know we're beating ourselves up, we're shaming ourselves, uh, you know that that kind of mental self flagellation that doesn't serve us. So how would you, if your best friend was going through what you're going through, how would you speak to them? The other way that he manages his emotional distress is cold water therapy. Whether he's putting his hands in cold water, taking a cold shower, or splashing cold water in his face. Cold, and I use that too. Um, when those mornings where it's tough for me to get out of bed, I, you know, just like going through a depressive episode or, or something's changed, I'll take a, a cold shower or I'll put my hands in cold water for three minutes, three minutes tops, and um, you'll be surprised at <laughs> how present and mindful you become. Deep breathing. Deep breathing is another way for us to uh, manage our emotional distress. I, pres- I subscribe to the HRV breathing, which is a five-second inhale in, and five-second inhale out, five-second inhale in, and five-second inhale out. And you can do that for a minute, up to five minutes, uh, whatever your tolerance is for that. Um, But this is a way now, so when we talk about emotional distress, this is like something's hit us and it was unexpected, and so how do we get ourselves back to neutral, right? Um, And then another way to manage our emotional distress is to do the opposite action. A lot of times when uh, we're uh, you know, stressed out, upset, angry, in a full rage, we want to do something that's hurtful instead of helpful. But, uh, but obviously we want to do the opposite of that, which is we want to do something helpful instead of hurtful. So ask yourself, when you're in emotional distress, um, are you eating, moving, um, expressing yourself in a way that is helpful or that is hurtful, that is just digging yourself into a digger ditch, right? Um, because sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll take revenge, like I'm going to get this person back, and it just ends up hurting us more in the end, right? It takes us off course, it takes us off our purpose, and it leads to more pain and suffering. And then uh, last one for his uh, managing his emotional distress Getting outdoors again. Go outdoors, get in nature, no podcasts, no music. Um, you know, maybe leave your phone behind, but all these different things that can help us uh, manage our emotional distress. Now, obviously, we haven't really talked about therapy. And he definitely, Dr. Peter Atia, to, to manage his rage and, and anger and frustrations, um, got a therapist. And so, and, and you know, I think some people don't go to therapy because they're like, what do we talk about? What do we do? What, what's this, you know, it's, it's just kind of uh, a weird thing if you didn't grow up with it. 
And and so here was his checklist of how they start therapy, and I love that he included this. He said, first, when he goes into therapy, uh, the therapist does a physical check-in, meaning asking how is he feeling in this moment, how, how did he sleep last night, and is there any physical or emotional pain that we need to be addressed. So once again, they do a quick physical check-in of how are you feeling, how did you sleep, and is there any pain that we need to address. And then from there, they discuss issues and events of the week. And nothing is insignificant, right? If he uh, watched a TV show that upset him, they'll talk about that. If somebody cut him off, uh, he'll talk about that. If there's something in the news. And this is something that I do with my therapist also, where we'll talk uh, about everything from a book that I'm reading to uh, a text that I received to a food that I ate or a restaurant I went to. We talk about everything because everything is a window into who we are and what our values are, what's what what's uh, meaningful to us, what fulfills us. And it's all, I, I, I want you to think about therapy um, as your therapist as a person who is accumulating information and insights and an understanding of you so that in those moments of extreme emotional duress, distress, they can, they then have more tools and uh, more of a backstory of which to address your what you're going through, right? Meaning if I if I if I go in and I'm I'm upset and I go, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, the world's on fire, and she goes, Well, you know, I remember a couple months ago you you were talking about how you you met uh, such and such and how much love they had for you and how they really helped you out. And because in my emotional distress I will have forgotten that and be like, oh, yeah, that's right. They did help me out. Okay, not everybody, but most everybody. And she'd be like, well, you know, what about? And so they they have this information about you. And then, all you know, and if that, you know, another example would be, you know, she could say, well, last time that you, you went through this, um, I remember it lasted for a few days and then uh, you journaled about it. And then you you said that that brought your, distress down like and then she'll be like so did you journal like no I didn't journal so she's they're they're there to remind you of the tools resources weaponry tactics skills what have you that you've used in the past to regulate yourself to empower yourself to keep you moving forward or to be able to expand your window of tolerance um, so it's great. That's why they're always taking notes and writing things down. And at the end of this chapter, uh, I really love this. He said through the therapy and the treatment, and of course he's still in there, but he said he found joy in being than doing because he was so, he was one of these people that was so wrapped up in, uh, what he did, um, and, or, you know, yeah, and what he did and what was on his resume, then uh, just just the being, just being a good father, being a good husband, being a good doctor, like to find joy in the being and st- instead of uh, in the doing, right? 
the quote that he ends the chapter with, and I love this quote. I love this quote. He says, maybe the journey isn't so much about being becoming anything. Maybe it's about becoming everything that isn't really you. So you can be who you were meant to be in the first place. And that's a quote by Paulo Coelho. It's such a beautiful quote. Maybe the journey isn't so much about becoming anything. Maybe it's about unbecoming everything that isn't really you. So you can be who you were meant to be in the first place. I, I, I love that quote so much. I, I read it twice, you know. Um, there's a part of, and I was going to end the, the podcast there, and then I remembered <laughs> I'm going to squeeze this in because it's so valuable. Uh, in terms of distress tolerance, in terms of him discussing distress tolerance, um, that there were uh, one, two, three, four. There were six other things that he mentioned in terms of coping with his distress tolerance. He said, one, don't poison the water you live in. And this is referring to his anger and rage and yelling at people around him. He said, if, if you were a, a, a fish in a fishbowl, right, you would not want to pollute that ecosystem with your words or your actions or anything. So why would you do the same thing in your house when, when you uh, explode into a full-blown rage or if you punch a hole in the wall or hurt people um, or neglect or what have you, um, you're poisoning the ecosystem that you're living in, being your children, your wife, your friends, uh, your connections. Don't poison the water you live in. The second takeaway from managing his distress tolerance was check in with, he's talked about checking in with his wife, wife's experiences and not her events. I love this. A lot of times we go, what did you do today? Right? I hate that question. I hate what did you do today? But by checking in with the wife's experiences and not the events, then you're reminding yourself uh, the importance of emotions. It's because it's not about, remember with trauma, it's not about what happened to you. It's about your perception of what happened to you. It's about how, what happened to you, what, what did that feel like, right? And so same thing with our day's events. So with Michelle, my girlfriend, I don't, like I'll ask her, um, instead of, well, actually, instead of asking her about what she did today, I'll ask her um, an emotionally led question. So I'll say, you know, did anything surprise you today? Um, was there a moment? Was there a moment today where you felt a bit of friction? So I'm I'm asking her from a place of emotional experience rather than the event. Like you know, did you go to the gym today? Did you work out? Did you get your steps in? And yada yada yada. Now that doesn't mean that I, I don't also ask about events. I obviously uh, will do that. But I, I mix in the experience, uh, being more curious about the experience of the event versus then asking about the event directly. And I think that if we, if we do that more, um, we'll find that people will share more of, of what they're going through. And then the third way he manages his distress tolerance is by reframing what is happening for the other person. So you know, for myself, I recognize that um, part of what's adding to my distress is I am making assumptions about why the person said or did what they did. 
um, in a way that's fueling my distress. You know, like this person doesn't like me or they don't respect me, right? That's only adding to my distress versus, oh, this person had um, a long day. They didn't get a lot of sleep last night. Um, they, uh, they're dealing with a back injury. Like, so how can you reframe your interpretation of what's happening to you so that it doesn't add more uh, distress to, to what you're experiencing, or at least I should say keeps you neutral, right? And then the fourth way he manages his distress tolerance is he thinks about uh, his resume, his eulogy virtues instead of his resume virtues. So a lot of times, and this is for the perfectionists out there, if you're a perfectionist, a lot of times we're doing things because we're trying to pad our resume, build up our resume. But he said, instead of thinking about what an employer is going to see in your resume, think about what your friends would say at your eulogy. What are your eulogy uh, virtues? Are you going to say that you're kind, compassionate, helpful, resourceful, uh, thoughtful? Like, what are those things that they're going to say that you're full of? <laughs> So think about your eulogy virtues versus your resume virtues. And, of course, we want to have a balance, right, where uh, we need some things on our resume just from a practicality standpoint. You got to go to school, you know, uh, you know, get work done. Like we, we, we do definitely have to put things on, have things for our resume. But, that, but to, to make sure that we're not leaning 100% in that direction, we always also want to look at our eulogy virtues. And then he writes, uh, he writes a, a self-affirmation for every year of his life. So I'm 47. I would write 47 uh, self-affirmations, which I haven't done. But now that I, I'm saying this out loud to you all, I'm going to do that. Uh, I'm going to put that on my calendar. I'm going to schedule that for a day because I love the, the challenge of that. I actually have a, a, week, a trip coming up for two weeks, and this will give me a way to uh, occupy myself. And then the last way he manages his distress tolerance, and I love this, the stone cutter mindset, right? The stone cutter mindset is, I don't know if you ever watched some, someone try to break a stone with the ham, hammer and chisel. They may hit that hammer, uh, that chisel a hundred times, and there's no sign that that stone is going to break. And then on the 101 time he hits it, all of a sudden it cracks and splits in two. And he said, we have to look at our, our mental health, our life, our effort the same way. So, uh, you know, we keep showing up. We keep trying to um, tackle this thing, and it looks like we're not getting anywhere. It feels like we aren't making any progress, like we're stuck. But if we keep showing up, if we keep putting the hammer to the chisel, at some point, it's just going to crack and split in two. And it's going to feel like it just suddenly happened. But um, it, it, it took 100 cracks uh, or 100 hits to actually get the crack and then split in two. So thank you for tuning in. Uh, if there's anything I want you to take away from this, uh, I know I threw a lot of information at you. Um, you check out Dr. Peter Tia's book, Outlive. The Science and Art of Longevity. Uh, it's out now, uh, hardcover. If there's anything I would say, it's to remind ourselves that it's, it's manageable. It's, 
it's it's fixable. Whatever we're going through, there is some way to resolve it. He tells a story in a book about um, this kid, Kevin, I forget his last name, who in, in uh, the mid-1990s jumps from the San Francisco Bay Bridge to end his life. And he is the 1% of people who have done that and have actually lived. And in his report, uh, Kevin, uh, Ken shares that there was a guy named Kevin who jumped and lived also. But this is about Ken. And Ken actually said that as soon as he jumped, he realized that what felt unfixable was fixable. And what felt unsolvable was solvable. He realized that as soon as he jumped. So that's what I want to leave you with, that whatever feels unfixable is fixable, and whatever feels unsolvable is solvable. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. Uh, Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you calling the 988 or any of the other 800 numbers. You can chat, talk, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together.